Let's pray. Father, we pray that this morning Jesus Christ would be exalted, that your glory would be made known, that your people, that we would see your word, know your word, believe your word, trust your word, trust you in the way that we live, and that you would sanctify us and grow us as your word strips away at our flesh not just our sin, but also strips away at our mind, the flesh that is in our mind, that you would teach us your word, that you would refine our theology so that our life would reflect Christ more. And so do this mighty work by the power of your spirit. Pray that you would fill your people with your word and with your spirit. This morning, as we look into your word, give clarity and insight by your power and for your glory, and that we may be satisfied in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Effective evangelism has to be biblical evangelism, right? So if we want to do evangelism and we want to do it our own way and it's not a biblical way, then it won't be effective for genuine and true conversion of unbelievers. So our evangelism, in order to be effective, has to be biblical. If you're wondering what the word evangelism even means, it is essentially sharing and preaching the gospel of Jesus to unbelievers with the intention that they would believe. So uh, essentially what we call that today is sharing the gospel. So uh, evangelism is not actually a word in the Bible, although there is a word very close to it in the Bible called evangelist, and it's only used three times in Scripture. One is in Mark 16, 15, where we're literally commanded to go and share the gospel. However, we've got an issue, and I'm going to bring up a really weird issue. You're going to be like, wait, wait, wait a second, what? So I'm just going to bring up this issue, address it, move on. We're not going to talk about it. But Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, are widely accepted by most scholars as not actually Scripture. But it's in your Bible, and if you looked at Mark 16, 9 through 20, you'd see a little thing in your Bible where they say, the earliest manuscripts and most manuscripts don't have verses 9 through 20 in them, but we found manuscripts with it in it later, so most scholars believe, and I agree, that verses 9 through 20 in Mark 16 are not technically scripture. What probably happened was a scribe accidentally, not accidentally, a scribe wrote notes and they got added to scripture later as copies of manuscripts were copied over hundreds and hundreds of years. So, not only that, but the theology in those texts doesn't really match scripture either. And believe it or not, there's a few other examples of very similar realities throughout uh, the Bible. Look at Acts 28-29 sometime. Not right now, just later today. Look up Acts 28-29, see what you find. <laughs> okay. You won't find it. That's my point. Because it's a 
little asterisk next to it, and they put it at the bottom row and say, this is not found in early manuscripts. So that's one mention of evangelism, but I wouldn't call that scripture. Acts 21.8, Philip, he's named an evangelist, but we don't, we're not, evangelism, evangelism isn't commanded to us, we're just know that there's a guy named Philip, and he's called an evangelist. 2 Timothy 4.5, Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, but that's specifically for Pastor Timothy's early church ministry. It's not a directive for the congregation. So, we have no biblical command to evangelize. There are examples of evangelism, but no direct command. No explicit command to evangelize. Now, the most prominent text for evangelism is, in Scripture is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, where Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. <clears throat> this text is used primarily as the number one motivating scripture to tell us to go share the gospel with people. The problem with that is that Jesus isn't telling us to evangelize here. He's telling us to make disciples. Discipleship is the aim in this text. For someone to become a disciple, however, they must what? They must first believe, right? Or they must first be evangelized. So I can see how the text appears to be an evangelical text to reach the lost. However, the command in this verb, or I'm sorry, the command verb in this text is make. So you got four verbs in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go, make, baptize, and teach. Only one of those is an imperative verb, and it's make. So make disciples is the command. How do you make disciples? By doing the three other verbs that are not imperative verbs, they're indicative verbs. They state fact. Meaning, how you fulfill the command to make disciples is you go to people, you teach them to obey Jesus, and you baptize them. That's how you make a disciple. So we go, baptize, we teach, and somewhere or somehow there is an evangelical point here because those who get discipled must first get saved. So the question isn't, should we share the gospel with unbelievers? That, of course we should. But what we need to do is effective evangelism. And when we look at scripture, we don't find direct, explicit commands to go and evangelize. We see examples of it. But we do have clarity in evangelical or in evangelism texts throughout the Bible that clarify what effective evangelism really looks like. But the church has begun to emphasize, like Matthew 28, has begun to emphasize what Jesus did not emphasize in this command, which is the evangelical part. The evangelism part is not the emphasis. The discipleship is the emphasis. Teaching them to obey so that they can grow in their faith. But evangelism, however, is implied, implied throughout the New Testament. And the reason it is implicit and not explicit it's because the focus of evangelism is not that we would go and save the lost, but that we would be holy 
And in our holiness, our conduct would not only support our gospel, but would provide the opportunity to preach our gospel to unbelievers. So if, you're, if what you're hearing now is that we don't believe in evangelism, that's not at all what I'm saying. We don't want to do evangelism. We want to do effective evangelism, which is focused on you and your conduct and your spiritual growth and your sanctification and your holiness. Not on church programs or ministries to save the lost at the expense of your own spiritual growth. So, the question becomes, if we aren't being commanded explicitly to evangelize, then how will people get saved? Well, there are two ways, and there's really more than two ways, and they're all kind of intertwined, so to kind of say that there's just two ways is kind of binary, but one, people get saved through evangelists. Ephesians 4.11 tells us that God gives the church pastors, teachers, and evangelists. But not everyone's an evangelist. Only those who are called to be an evangelist like Timothy. And then two, second way that people get saved clarifies the first one as well. Because even for the evangelist and for you, evangelism happens through your testimony through your life, through your faith, through your obedience, through your speech, and through your proclamation of the gospel. But that is not a church program, and it is not intended to increase church attendance as the modern church has kind of twisted it to become. Instead, your daily faithfulness to Christ, that's your testimony. The word doesn't command us to go and evangelize. The word commands us to get sanctified, to learn to obey God's word. And then Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, they will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's effective evangelism. So effective evangelism is the obedient life of a growing believer. And the, the obedient Life of a growing believer pursues relationships. And it is in those relationships where your faithfulness to Christ is revealed as you relate to others and that testimony of your obedient, growing life that is being sanctified becomes your opportunity to preach the gospel to lost people. When I went to New York City to do um, evangelism in the streets, it was highly ineffective, very ineffective. Number one, you ever try to talk to a New Yorker? Just walk up to a random person in New York City on Times Square and try to talk to them? They do not want to talk to you. That's the first thing. The second thing is they don't know me. My life, there's no testimony to share with them. I could tell them about my life, but they haven't seen it. Effective evangelism requires two things. You have to preach the gospel and you have to live the gospel. And all of the biblical texts on evangelism emphasize and focus not on going and preaching to the lost, but on the conduct and the faithfulness of the believer. Because the assumption is that your evangelism will be most effective in relationships. This is drastically different from 
some modern church models that view that we should have evangelism ministries where they go out and we try to save as many people as we can and then we have to come to church because that's like a church growth driven model and it's not supported in scripture. Consider missionaries, for example. If you might be thinking like, well, what about missionaries? Isn't their whole point to go and preach the gospel? Actually, their ministry is not evangelism. Their ministry is relationships. They go to a a particular place, let's just say like a, a tribe, and they spend years and years of faithfully living like Christ and growing in obedience and being in the word. And how do people in these tribes get saved by missionaries? By watching that person grow in Christ for years. I know missionaries. I don't know a single, well, yeah, I don't personally know, I'm sure it's happened, but I don't personally know any missionary who has walked into a random tribe that God called them to and they stepped foot on that island and said, hey everybody, let me tell you about Jesus and all the tribe people are like, ha, I believe. I mean, it's happened. It happens in scripture sometimes. I'm not saying that can happen, but the most effective version of evangelism is they go there and they live there. They build huts. They supply needs for the people. They're there relationally. They build, they just spend, they just live just live their life with these people. And that is effective because those people get to see the transformative work of the gospel in this person's life take shape over years. You look at Jesus' ministry. He goes out and preaches to thousands of people, feeds them, thousands of people. Thousands, at least 10,000 are following him. How many, how many are at the cross Two? Not even Peter joined Jesus at the cross. Peter was like, I don't know him. I could go out into the streets and preach the gospel to 100 people and 90 of them could be like, I'm saved! And I would believe that, but I kind of would definitely be cautious that those 90 people are genuinely saved because that tends to not be the most effective method. And in most cases, when that kind of salvation happens in large massive numbers not all those people are the good seed that's planted deep in the soil many of them become as jesus describes the seed that's choked out by the cares of the world or twisted out by satan that happens that's a reality that's a statistical reality so the most effective evangelism is relationships is time and people seeing the way that you live your life. The biblical model for evangelism is not that the church should be focused on saving lost people, although that is our desire. It's just not our focus. It is a desire. We want that. We pray for that. And we pursue that. But how we pursue that is the difference. The church should focus on growing spiritually and then trusting God's sovereign will and his elective purposes to provide opportunities for us to do what 1 Peter 3.15 says, which is to make a defense for our faith when? When others ask us about it. And notice that in 1 Peter 3.15, he doesn't say go out there and tell everyone about Jesus. He says make a defense, which means someone is making an accusation or they're asking questions. They're coming to you in response to the way you live your life. And Peter says that's when we provide our defense or our apologetic for the gospel. 
So that leaves us with this. What should we say then when they ask? When we live a life of holiness and we live in conduct that is righteous, what should we say when God does provide these opportunities? Paul answers that question in Colossians 4, verses 5 through 6. And what you'll notice in this evangelism text is that the lost are not the focus of this text. You are. The believer's behavior is the focus. Their sanctification is the focus so that through their obedience to the command in Colossians 4 verse 5, God would fulfill his role to save lost people. So we need not focus on saving the lost. We need to focus on our sanctification, on our obedience, on our faithfulness, and trust God to provide the opportunities and trust God to do the saving work in those opportunities so that our faithfulness and growth in Christ becomes effective evangelism. We should not focus on saving as many people as we can. We should focus on getting people genuinely saved, which, biblically speaking, will be less people because Jesus said many are called, but few are chosen. Because it is our focus... that our sanctification would be our priority and we trust God's sovereign elective purposes, his sovereign election, then we can trust that his biblical way to evangelize will produce the best results, not the most results. That if we do it God's way, if we do it biblically, that our evangelism is primarily focused on our sanctification, we will produce the best fruit, not the most fruit. If you want to save the lost, if you want evangelism to be effective, let's do what the Word tells us. And 99% of the New Testament has nothing to do with outreach. has nothing to do with evangelism. Outreach and evangelism is implied in much of the New Testament, but it's not the priority when it is implied. So it's there, it's important, it's part of the Christian walk, it's part of the church, it's just not the priority. And what I see in churches today, some churches, is elevating this priority of evangelism while the people who are serving in those ministries aren't growing, which is going to be incredibly ineffective. And why aren't they growing? Because their focus is saving lost people, not saving themselves. And if you're thinking that sounds like a heretical gospel that we can save ourselves, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for those who are being saved, the gospel is life. So being saved is this, we are Justified in Christ, but the process of sanctification is a process of living out and revealing and becoming or fulfilling the justification that happens. So we are being saved. It's this already but not yet, right? I'm already securely stamped and sealed with the Holy Spirit. I am saved. I don't need to work at it. I don't need to make it happen. But then this Christian life is a process of living out that salvation. And as Jesus says, proving it. So that is the most effective way to preach the gospel. That our words match our life. 
And what I see in churches is this, this emphasis on, on going and saving people while the people who are doing those ministries aren't in the Word and aren't practicing godly disciplines and they aren't growing. And I think that's intentional by God. I think He intentionally works. That I, th- I think there's a reason that there's not explicit commands for evangelism because God knows we will focus on saving others instead of growing ourselves, which is the whole point of your salvation. And by focusing on others, we can justify it very easily and say, I'm others-focused. Isn't that what God is all about? Aren't I told to care more about others than myself? I'm just being biblical. I'm just trying to save lost people because I care more about others, and that's it, than myself. But when it comes to your sanctification, God's like, the point is to focus on your growth. And if you do it my way and focus on your growth, Matthew 6.33, then through that growth... I will produce effective evangelism through you. So we have to do it God's way. Effective outreach is the product of genuine inreach. And we see this in Colossians 4, 5. Paul says, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Paul had a unique ministry that almost all of us do not have, which is an apostolic ministry to plant churches everywhere. And Paul was an apostle. We are not. So his life, his life is not our example, which is why he writes his letters to the church and tells us how to live. And the only time Paul tells us to imitate him or to use his example is in regard to his holiness, to the character of Christ that is being developed in him. That's when we're told to imitate him. We're not told to imitate his ministry. So Paul's evangelism toward outsiders or unbelievers, the way he did it, that's not our aim. Rather, our aim is to obey his instructions in his letters, which is why he wrote them for us. And those letters, 13 letters Paul wrote, and the rest of the New Testament as well, are heavily focused on your personal transformation into Christ-likeness. The command is that the church conduct themselves wisely toward unbelievers. This is a command, this is a common biblical theme that we should conduct ourselves in holiness so that unbelievers would not have an argument against the gospel because we do not live what we preach. So reaching the loss is not the aim. Your holiness through sanctification is the aim. And the beneficiaries of your sanctification are both you and the lost. And that requires your trust and confidence and reliance on a sovereign God who will put the right people whom he has elected into your life for you to speak the gospel and defend the gospel with your life and your obedience I'm sure a lot of you have heard these kind of phrases before. Unbelievers say things like, I don't go to church and I don't want to be a Christian because Christians are hypocrites. All Christians are hypocrites. That's all I ever see. The church is just a bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of people who talk about how they're good but they're not, which is just a faulty gospel that they believe because no genuine Christian says, I'm good on my own. We say, I'm good in Christ. But without him, 
I'm wretched, disgusting, and I deserve death. Well, that idea that I won't believe the gospel because I watch the way Christians live their life and it doesn't let me believe. That's faulty logic. That's, that's a logical fallacy, and it's a specific logical fallacy called ad hominem, which is where you attack the person instead of the argument. Because you have no defense for the argument, so you attack the person instead. That's what they're doing. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. And it's false logic because our behavior does not negate the truth. However, God's concern for us is that our behavior would not be a stumbling block or a hindrance to the gospel. And that is why Paul says that to conduct yourself wisely toward outsiders is essentially our way of what he also says, making the best use of your time which means that we take advantage of every opportunity, every opportunity to preach the gospel. But if our conduct is not holy, then we are not taking advantage of every opportunity. So in order to discredit the gospel, uh, in order to not discredit the gospel that we preach, we must live the gospel that we preach and conduct ourselves wisely. In Romans 12, 17, Paul commands us, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of God all that's all people not just believers but unbelievers as well so not to hinder the preaching of the gospel and specifically not to pervert the grace of god with your sin peter makes the same argument and he makes his argument even clear that the gospel is at stake in the way that you live your life first peter 2 12 he writes keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice that all of these evangelism texts are not focused on saving lost people. They're focused on your conduct and your holiness as a believer, which is the means that produces salvation for the lost. If you care about the lost, this should be great news. What Peter's telling us in his text is that despite your wise and honorable conduct, there will be some who still reject the gospel when you preach it to them. You could preach it perfectly, and you could live it wonderfully, and they will still reject it. And Jesus tells us why. It's not you they're rejecting, it's me. But we see that even if they do reject it, what Peter says is there's still hope for them. There's still hope for them that when the end of time draws near, they will see or remember your Christ-likeness and the gospel that you preach, and they will come to faith in Christ due to your God-glorifying life. That's what Peter says. The con your conduct, um, being honorable among the Gentiles, will be the means by which they get saved. Not because your conduct saves them it's the words that we preach that are the gospel that saves them it's the word that saves them but our conduct can get in the way even if our words are right and that is why the emphasis on evangelism is so often your spiritual growth 
So expect them to reject your words for now, but don't let their rejection be due to your conduct. Maintain godliness while they revile you because there is still hope that your conduct will draw them to Christ eventually. And that requires trusting a sovereign God. So how do we conduct ourselves wisely? Well, in Romans 16, 19, Paul says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So notice here that your obedience is known to all, meaning obedience, which is required of the believer, is obvious and seen. It's visual. And it produces the very thing that God is commanding of us, that our conduct or obedience will draw unbelievers to Christ. But we also get this warning in here from Paul about wisdom, that we need to be prudent and perceptive about what is actually good and what is actually evil. We need to have wisdom to discern, meaning the requirement for wisdom is discernment. And wisdom and discernment are the Spirit's gifts. Therefore, in order to obey in a way that is revealed to all who see us live, we need wisdom to discern what is good and evil. In order to obey, we need wisdom to discern between good and evil. And wisdom requires the Spirit So we must be filled with the Spirit to do effective evangelism and to conduct our lives well. And how do we get the Spirit? By being in what? The Word and in prayer. By being in the Word, God reveals to us good from evil. And by being in prayer, His Spirit discerns for us good and evil in the minutia of life. So that we can obey in an instant. If you're not in the Word, you're not in prayer, and you come across a situation, number one, you may not know what's good and evil in this scenario because you don't know the Word. And number two, if you're not in the Word enough, you might pick the wrong biblical idea to enact in that moment because you're not in the Word enough. You can't discern, is this good or is this bad? Should I do this or should I not do this? If you're not in the Word and you're not in prayer, you're not filled with the Spirit, you don't know the truth, you can't discern. And then your life and your conduct becomes a hindrance to the preaching of the gospel that we are to do. So to answer the question of how do we conduct ourselves wisely, the answer is by being in the word and in prayer. So to be filled with the spirit, which we get when we commune with God, and God will, Romans 5, 5, pour his spirit into us. And the spirit manifests wisdom and discernment out of us as we conduct ourselves in holiness and as God refines our Christian life by putting us through the fire of refinement, which is a lifetime of sanctification where he burns off the flesh and reveals this beautiful Christ-likeness that is underneath. And then Paul clarifies in verse 6, what that wisdom from the Spirit will look like as you conduct yourself wisely. He says in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, 
seasoned with salt. So what's happening here is you have verse 5, which says your behavior in your evangelism matters. And then what he says in verse 6 is what you say as evangelism matters. They both matter. Don't let one of them deter people from believing and don't let either your behavior or your speech ruin the other one. Don't let your speech discredit your conduct and don't let your conduct discredit your speech. Your speech and your conduct should be holy. Well, how do we get holy speech and conduct? By being in the word and prayer. By participating in life with your church, right? Like life groups and Bible studies and serving together and, you know, like... I was here yesterday doing sermon prep and there were some people here vacuuming the church and cleaning up the church and I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, how righteous. No one's here to praise them. No one's here to thank them. No one's here to say, without you, what would we do? They just come here quietly. They do it. They serve the Lord. They love Jesus and it shows up in the way that they serve the body. It's not just being in the word and prayer. Those are priorities. And if you're in the word and prayer, the rest of Christian life, the rest of church life just comes to life. You desire to commune with one another. You desire to fellowship with each other. You desire to hang out and talk and have fun and go play games. One of the best times I had all year was going and playing laser tag with Drew and all of Bo's friends for his birthday. We weren't in the word. We were shooting each other with lasers. It was a blast. And the reason that was fun is because we have a Christ-like bond and relationship together. What Paul tells us in verse 6 is that our speech must always be gracious. And then he clarifies that this gracious speech must also be seasoned with salt. So grace in your speech not only makes the gospel you preach palatable, right? Grace makes your speech palatable to unbelievers, but what it also does is it, is it reveals the active truth of the grace that makes the gospel possible. And what I mean by that is that when you speak graciously to unbelievers, you are showing the active work of God's grace in your life. The gospel isn't just something we believe. The gospel of God in Christ is not just doctrine, it's not just for theological dissertations and conversations. The, God's grace has not only just saved me eternally, but God's grace has made me gracious. Because God has, Ezekiel 36, 26, softened my heart with his spirit and put his truth in me, put his spirit in me. And with that soft heart, I have become, like Christ, compassionate and soft towards others. Not harsh. There is real change in a believer's life. There is real grace that shows up in the way that we live. That's what the gospel does. And it reveals that God's grace toward us is real. And thus our, our gracious speech clears away rebuttals to the gospel that we preach. Because we not only preach grace, but we live grace and we speak grace. And we speak graciously. 
And Paul says that our gracious speech must be seasoned with salt. Theologian Kent Hughes says that seasoned with salt means salty, savory, scintillating, not dull, sanctimonious vocabulary. Like the preaching of the gospel should not be dull and boring with a lot of unnecessary vocabulary that doesn't help people. I often work through my sermons and have to change words just because I'm like, I don't want to use words that I may have to define because someone might not know it, you know, especially like theological words. Like, why not just say it in plain English so they understand it? That's what Paul did, unless it's an opportunity to teach you an important word. But your wise conduct is in your speech that, that it would be, you know, salty and savory, sweet. I mean, have you ever had a potato that's just a potato? Like, no butter, <laughs> no salt. Oh, they're the worst. <laughs> they're not good. They're not good. It's not like an apple. You can take a bite out of an apple. My wife bought apples from the, uh, whatever, the farmer's market the other day, and I took a bite out of it, and it was just like juice just dripping down my face, like, this is the greatest apple I've ever had in my life. It's so sweet and delicious. Take a bite. Ever take a bite out of a potato? Ew. So what do we do to potatoes? Cut them open, we put a stick of butter on it, and put a half a pound of salt, <laughs> because the potato really just serves our desire for salt and butter, right? So, so like, that should be our speech, salt that adds flavor it's not, he's not saying that the gospel needs help. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying the way that you conduct yourself in speech should be joyful and, and, and taste good. And people should be like, I love when you talk. I love hearing you. There's a guy that I know. He's a pastor in the area. Oh, when he speaks, I meet with him every week, once a week. When he talks, I just feel like I'm a little kid just going like this. Yeah? Yeah, keep going. I'm just like infatuated with his words. Because out of, out of his mouth comes this sweet, like sensitive, compassionate, and also biblically astute and knowledgeable words. So he uses wisdom and knowledge, but it comes out so gentle. And I'm like, I want to be, he's a pastor. I'm like, I want to be like you. I want to be like him. And, and when he talks, I'm just like, that's everything he says is seasoned with salt. So our speech needs to be seasoned with salt. Because words are powerful. And that's what James 3 teaches us. That one little flame sets an entire forest on fire. One word can set an entire church on fire. So Choose your words carefully. Jesus tells us that everybody will have to give an account for every careless word they speak. That is not unbelievers only. That's all people, believers and unbelievers alike. We have to give an account for every careless word you speak. Choose your words wisely. So your words must, must match your actions and your words must be seasoned with salt, meaning they are words that bring the dullness of a godless human existence to life. 
with the flavor of God's grace and goodness. That's what your speech should be like. And though we might think of gracious speech as being something incredibly gentle, right? It's not always that way. Because the Greek meaning for seasoned with salt actually means joyful and witty. Yes, we're told to be witty. Because we're also told to be like wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. There's a gentleness, and with the gentleness also comes this wisdom, this awareness, this cultural understanding, this, this, this idea that we, we live in a world, we know the context of conversations, we know the meaning of phrases, we understand the world around us and the people in it and the culture that we live in and the Word of God as well, and we bring the Word of God in a witty, clever, and joyful way into people's lives through the culture that we live in, through the context that you're in, through the conversations that you're engaged in. You bring salt to the potato that is a conversation with unbelievers. Wit, being witty, is not often seen as gracious because wit can be rather abrasive, right? And abrasion in our speech can sometimes be necessary though like we we need to be abrasive sometimes to draw people to christ we because we must we must to preach the gospel and to live the gospel we must offend them we have to offend their conscience offense is absolutely required for the gospel to work sinners live in constant offense to god And to see their need for Christ, they must first see the abrasive nature of their hatred toward God without Christ so that they would come to him for his grace. So wit and being witty, which means also being joyful in your wit, can serve the purpose of the gospel because not because it's mean-spirited. Wit does not mean being mean-spirited or crass and rude or crude. That's not at all what wit is. Wit is intentionally offending their conscience with biblical, truth, joyful, life-giving, seasoned words. And they will be, because of their conscience, naturally offensive. But some fair warnings are required when we are to wield our wit. Effective wit that is honorable to God and effective in preaching the gospel is still thoughtful speech, thoughtful, not just spewing out garbage, it's thoughtful speech with biblical and holy content. Back in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul commands our speech to be holy. So wit does not mean that we can be obscene or make crude jokes or use inappropriate language. That is sin. You know, if there's a bunch of people joking and being in a totally inappropriate and unchristlike, and you join in and you throw a joke, and they're like, oh, pastor told me to be witty. They're talking about this and that, so I'm going to be witty and throw my joke in there. No, you're supposed to bring life to the conversation, not add to the death of the conversation. Season it with the salt, and being witty includes the joy of the Lord. It includes biblical truth. It, it includes you know, a sweetness about Christ that is not already in the conversation. 
And this is where wisdom comes back in. And Paul tells us in verse 5 to conduct ourselves wisely. Wisdom is needed to know when and when not to be witty. The abrasiveness of your wit should not be in the words that you use. The abrasiveness of your wit should be in the truth that your witty and joyful speech reveals. The truth of the gospel. The truth about God. The truth about what man's hatred toward God without Christ is like. And about the, the truth of sin in their life. The truth will be abrasive. Our words do not need to be. Wit is the vehicle that brings the abrasive nature of the truth into the conversation. Meaning even if we are witty, we must still speak with joy and with truth and with grace. With our hearts and minds and words aimed at their souls, which should be natural to us because we are in the word and in prayer and growing in Christ's likeness as the Spirit produces a desire and a compassion for lost people. And Paul concludes in verse 6 with a reason. So here's the reason in verse 6. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now if that is the reason, then what's the cause of this reason? What is the reason for well, the reason is very similar to Paul's reason back in verse 4, where he said that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So what Paul was saying in verse 4, really, I'll just summarize it because I preached that last week, but I'll just summarize it for you. Paul was referring to boldness. He's saying, I ought to speak boldly. Pray for me. Why? So that I can speak boldly. Conduct yourselves wisely and speak with Season salt in your speech and with grace. Why? So that you can speak boldly. That's the, that's the reason. And just like salty speech, boldness is abrasive. But the language and the speech doesn't need to be rude or crude. That's not the kind of abrasion we're looking for. The boldness is abrasive because it serves the abrasive nature of the truth. So what Paul is saying in verse 6 is that we must also preach and speak the truth with boldness, with confidence in Christ, with trust, reliance, and dependence on God that our words will do what he sends them out to do. And according to Isaiah 55, 11, if we are speaking the word of God, which is what our salt or what our speech should be, because if we're going to add seasoning and salt and flavor and grace and truth to a conversation, where do we find sweetness and grace and truth and, and, and thoughtfulness and biblical content? Where do we find it? In the Word. So what, do we, what kind of speech do we bring to the conversations? The Word. Just thought of something. Because I learned, I, I, I learned it this week with our Wednesday night group. Christian, Christian walked us through Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you shall, uh, today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What is he telling us? The word of God should be everywhere in your life. 
It should be on the walls in your house. It should be on post-it notes or painted on the walls. You, if your wall, had, you couldn't even tell what color paint it was because all you have is scripture on your walls, that would be amazing. And you wear it on your shirt. And, and not literally, well, actually they make Christian t-shirts, so you could do that too. But you, what he's saying is like, it's, it's so visible in you. It's like you're wearing a necklace that says like, you know, a Bible verse on it. When you sit down, when you rise up, when you go, when you come, whatever you're doing, it's always, you're always, all your speech is seasoned with salt. Do you think if a, if a father were to live that way, do you think that his children would grow to love Jesus? It's inevitable. So what we bring to a conversation, the way we make our, our, our speech seasoned with salt, is by bringing the word. Because the word is grace and truth. And it will be abrasive, but it will be true. And what God says in Isaiah 55, 11 is, My word will not return to me void. It will accomplish that for which I send it to accomplish. If we bring the word to the conversation, it's going to work. I don't, there's no promise that person gets saved, but it will do what God promises it will do. And we might not know what it will do in that instance. So... To preach the truth in grace with joy and wit and thoughtful biblical content, we must have wisdom. And the Spirit is needed for wisdom. You can't have wisdom without the Spirit. And if you're telling me, well, I have experience and I have wisdom in the, in, you know, I've been a Christian for 25 years or whatever, however long, and, and I just, I have a wisdom, I have, you know, Worldly wisdom, essentially, because you're older, right? And Scripture speaks to that, that the gray hair is a crown, right? That this person's been through a lot. And have they gained wisdom for life through that? Absolutely. But does that wisdom compare to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit? Not even close. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Yet among the mature, listen, the mature. So we're talking about someone preaching to mature people. We do impart wisdom, meaning the mature need wisdom. Although it is not wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. So regardless of your life experience, nothing trumps the wisdom of the Spirit. And he goes on to say, For now... We have received not the spirit of the world, because the world gives you worldly wisdom, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we may impart this not in words, uh, we may impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. I don't care if you're 12, 25, 65, or 95 your life experience cannot be more instrumental than this wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God. So we preach the truth in grace, with joy and wit and thoughtful biblical content. And we must have wisdom and the Spirit is needed for wisdom. And to be filled with the Spirit, we must be in the Word and in prayer. Practicing the biblical godly disciplines that we are commanded so that the eternal fate of others is not dependent on you 
but on the word of God that does not cease to come from your mouth because you talk about it and you think about it and you read about it and you pray about it as you come and as you go and as you sit and as you lay down and as you go in your house and it's on the doorpost, it's on your walls, it's in your office, your word's open, the Bible's open, you're always reading the Bible, you got a Bible in your office, you got a Bible at home, you got your Bible app open on your phone, you're in the word, you're in the word, you love the word. Joshua says, I don't want it to depart from my lips. David said, I'm going to be in your word constantly. He wrote an entire chapter, the longest chapter in the entire Bible. There's 175, 176 verses or something like that in one chapter, Psalm 119. I think there's like 170 of them all have the word in it. It's all about the word of God. That's how important it is. And when the word comes from our mouth, Jesus says, Matthew 12, 34, that means it was first it came from your heart. Meaning the best evangelism comes from your genuine spiritual growth in the word and in prayer. So, if we care at all about the salvation of lost people, or if we care about evangelism, we do not need to build evangelism programs or ministries or make a pillar of our church outreach we simply need to be people of the word and people of prayer. Focused on the discipleship of God's people so that your life and how you conduct it will be your evangelism. If you care about lost souls, then you first must care about your own. Let's pray. Father, cause us to be sanctified. Help us to be in your word, to grow in your spirit as he refines us through the fire, the sanctifying fire that is your word. As you rip sin off of us and pull it out of us and reveal Christ in us, pray that that would draw unbelievers to you so that we could rejoice in heaven with the people we love and even with those who we don't know but will love in Christ. Help us to love lost people, to have compassion for them, to care about them, to desire their salvation. But let, let us not focus solely on saving lost people at the expense of our own sanctification, which brings you great glory and honor. But let us follow your word and your way to reach lost people. Help us grow. And then help us trust that you will provide the right opportunities, the right time, and the right way with the right people, and you would give us the right words because we're doing it right by being in your word. Only you can cause that, Lord. We trust you with that life. We pray that you would produce that in this church for the sake of lost people in our community. It's all for your glory, for our joy in you, and also for theirs. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.